Professor, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Dimitri, I'm delighted to speak to you and to your students. Thank you so much. I'd like to begin a bit with your background. Civil liberties is a field of law that everybody says they want to do, particularly when they're in law school, but very few do in the way that you did it. How did you venture into that practice area? I have been involved in civil liberties in a consistent pattern, Dimitri, that I highly recommend to uh, others to follow, which is a combination of private practice with pro bono volunteer activity in civil liberties. So I was very active with the American Civil Liberties Union predominantly, although I've also been a leader in Human Rights Watch, uh, the leading domestic international human rights organization and several others. And I followed a pattern that is quite typical, which is all of these organizations have a certain number of full-time staff employees, including lawyers, but they also depend very heavily on the volunteer work of other people, including in particular other lawyers uh, who do pro bono work that augment the work that's done by the full-time staff lawyers. And that allows these organizations, including the ACLU, to punch way above their weight in terms of employees. And it's a wonderful benefit to those of us who are earning our living in the private sector because we get to um, work on issues that we are even more passionate about um, than those we're attending to, whether in our private capacities as practicing lawyers or as law professors or corporate counsel or so forth. And I have to say that the law firms and, and other private sector employees, employers benefit because it gives their, us, their staff members, including young associates, opportunities for uh, learning about and working on issues that they care deeply about while also developing their professional skills in ways that they might not be able to in their private practice. It may be an easy question. What drew you to civil liberties? Was it something in your past, your background, something in your history? I personally think, and, and I'm not a social psychologist or cognitive psychologist, so this is my layperson's theory. I think people are born with different predispositions and, and, and instincts. And in fact, I was recently talking to a social scientist who says there's a lot of evidence that people do have certain personality types and that they will then process their backgrounds and experience according to those pre-existing innate perspectives. Uh, you know, and obviously it's a, a virtual, a mutual reinforcing your experiences shape you, but your predispositions also do. Uh, from a very early age, as far back as I can remember, I resisted authority and uh, injustice and unfairness and very much asserted my voice even as a child or tried to uh, to speak up in favor of what I consider to be inherent rights of uh, free speech and privacy and dignity even on the part of young people. So I was thrilled when I grew up and, and learned that there are actually legal tools that are available to secure these rights and that there are organizations that exist to, uh, to further them in the real world. So let's get into it a bit further. Professor Ira Glasser, 
Aaron Desmond from the ACLU for a decade. Uh, it said last year that the ACLU did be operating on the new agenda, the implication being that free speech is being restricted in some way. Is that something that you I, I strongly disagree with that. And, you know, I should point out that Ira was the national executive director during my presidency, and we overlapped for a long time in the ACLU. And he and I and others in leadership are constantly debating and disagreeing with each other on uh, many, many points. That was the whole uh, reason why the ACLU National Board of Directors, which I presided over, got together to decide through debate and dissent what our positions would be on particular issues. And I think it's uh, interesting that even during Iris' time as executive director, there were many critics who carved that the ACLU was not doing enough to protect free speech, uh, others who carved that we were doing too much to protect free speech, and obviously I, I, I defend all the, the right to engage in, 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 different, uh, in debate and to have different perspectives. But I think the, the case that for most people epitomizes not only the ACLU's stalwart defense of free speech, but also the stalwart defense of free speech by the Supreme Court and the First Amendment law is the so-called Skokie case when the ACLU famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, in the late 1970s came to the defense of uh, free speech rights of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town that had not only a large Jewish population, but a large number of Holocaust survivors living there. And to Iris credit as executive director, uh, the ACLU against enormous uh, dissent, even within our own ranks, uh, staunchly defended freedom of speech, even for the speech that we hate, because as civil libertarians, uh, neo-Nazi speech uh, that's anti-Semitic and racist is of course antithetical to our own civil libertarian ideals. But we were channeling uh, Evelyn Beatrice Hall, the biographer of Voltaire, until recently this was a quote that was always attributed to Voltaire himself. Lately, it's been attributed to her uh, that I hate what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Well, fast forward uh, to 2017, almost exactly 50 years after the Skokie case, the ACLU did exactly the same thing when we came to the, and this is long after Iris tenure as executive director during the period when he and some others are saying that we're not doing enough to continue protecting free speech. We came to the defense of the Unite the Right demonstrators in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, when they were demonstrating against the taking down of the Robert E. Lee statue uh, and the renaming of the of the, the park where it had been located. Uh, and believe me, we get enormous uh, criticisms and attacks for having done that. Uh, I, I often am accused of being responsible for the murder of Heather Heyer. She was the pro-civil rights counter demonstrator who was brutally killed by one of the white supremacists who drove his car intentionally into the crowd of counter demonstrators. So I think we continue to do a very good job of uh, adhering to First Amendment principles, even on behalf of anti-civil libertarians. Now that said, I think it's really important to note that there is too much of this work 
to go around. And even throughout my ACLU presidency, I was thrilled when new organizations would spring up with more specialized agendas. The ACLU has a very broad agenda, trying to defend all fundamental freedoms for all people. That's a big uh, order to live up to. And so you get this proliferation of other organizations that specialize either in certain rights, so you get free speech organizations, reproductive freedom organizations, racial justice, religious freedom, you name it, or you get organizations that specialize in the rights of particular groups of people, racial minorities, religious minorities, and so forth. I think they all play really vital roles. I support all of them. I think the group that is doing probably the most in litigating in support of free speech recently is FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And I and other national leaders of the ACLU supported FIRE when it was first formed. It was during my ACLU presidency and I championed it, as did Ira Glasser, because at that point, Fire was specializing in work on college and university campuses. And the ACLU had brought and won the first challenges to campus so-called hate speech codes. But it was very clear that it was going to be more than a full-time job to focus just on the free speech issues on campus. So it's wonderful that other groups have also been complementing the work that the ACLU continues to do. Is there such a thing as censorship. <laughs> there is such a thing as lawful censorship. In fact, the term censorship doesn't have a legal meaning, as, as you and I well know, uh, but it tends to be used for restrictions on speech that are, excuse me, I'm going to, I'm using up my voice, so let me lubricate. <clears throat> Uh, since the term censorship is a stigmatizing term that tends to be used for restrictions on speech that would be unconstitutional under the First Amendment's free speech clause. What is not nearly as well known as it should be is that there are many restrictions on free speech that are completely compatible with the First Amendment. And it, it is so popular lately to demonize the First Amendment and those of us who have a strong view of protected speech to caricature the position, to say, oh, you know, it's absolutist and you absolutists will never permit or tolerate any restrictions on speech whatsoever. And you deny that speech can do any harm. Nothing could be further from the truth. The more you study First Amendment law, the more you see that it completely overlaps with common sense. As a common sense matter, it empowers the government to outlaw the speech that is the most dangerous, while it also outlaws the censorship that is the most dangerous. And one easy way to summarize the distinction, Dimitri, is a phrase that the Supreme Court and other experts have used the emergency principle. And this goes back to uh, more than 100 years now to opinions and great opinions in the early 20th century by justices Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, giants. And um, they've said that government may restrict speech when the speech poses an emergency, when it directly 
causes or threatens certain specific imminent serious harm. And the only way to avert the harm is through restricting the speech. And the Supreme Court has recognized that multiple subcategories of speech that satisfy that emergency principle, many of them will sound familiar to many of your audience members, intentional incitement of imminent violence that is likely to happen imminently, or a true threat the Supreme Court recently decided uh, just a week or two ago a case that clarified this concept even further. When the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear on the part of a specifically targeted person or small group of persons, a reasonable, that is an objective fear, that they are going to be subject to immediate harm. Uh, and by the way, the speaker doesn't have to intend to actually carry out the harm, the speaker simply has to intend to instill the fear because that's harmful enough. If you reasonably fear that you're going to be physically harmed, uh, that will impede your freedom of movement and your freedom of speech. Now, let me give you examples of speech restrictions that don't satisfy the emergency standard and therefore are impermissible censorship, set the, the speech restrictions that are the most dangerous. That is when the government is suppressing speech, not because of a tight, direct connection to immediate harm as under the emergency principle, but rather solely because of disapproval of disagreement with the idea, the content, the message of the speech. I hate what you're saying, and the, or what you're saying is unpopular. And the Supreme Court decided a case on, on that issue uh, and the very last day of its term, the case involving the website designer um, this, who uh, refused to be compelled by the government to create artistic messages that were inconsistent with her own viewpoint. And the state of Colorado, which was on the other side, had stipulated, that means had formally agreed um, that the people who were in, in the particular case involved her refusal to create messages that endorsed same-sex weddings. I think it's also noteworthy that she also refused to create messages that encouraged violence or messages that disparaged anybody, including based on their sexual orientation. So, you know, she had certain messages that she didn't want to be forced to, to create. Um, the Supreme Court in Colorado recognized that uh, people who, same-sex couples who were seeking web designers would have no problem finding those services elsewhere. And so the court concluded that the only reason why she was being forced to uh, convey messages that she disagreed with or her other choice would have been that she wouldn't convey her own preferred messages about marriage or anything else. The only reason was to eliminate certain unpopular views from the marketplace of ideas, namely her opposition uh, to same-sex marriage. And that's completely antithetical to the role of the government in our society. It's not for the government to pick and choose which ideas we choose to express or choose not to express or choose to listen to and not to listen to. There's this term that's been thrown around by folks in the past couple of years called cancel culture. Um, nobody really seems to know what it means. And obviously, everybody knows that First Amendment applies only to state actors, to the government. How important is it, 
even for private actors, colleges and the like, to comply with the spirit of the First Amendment? It's absolutely critical because uh, having uh, adequate restrictions on government censorship, as we just discussed, is necessary, but not sufficient to enjoy meaningful free speech. If we have a cancel culture, and it's true, Dimitri, that nobody knows exactly what it means in the sense that there's no official definition, but come on, everybody knows what it means, which is when you have powerful private sector actors, whether they be social media platforms or Twitter mobs or employers, or to use your example, private sector academic institutions that are threatening uh, at best to shame and shun and ostracize somebody who issues an unpopular message at worst to visit severe economic and pro professional and personal adverse consequences, such as getting kicked out of school as a student or losing your job as an, as an employer, uh, employee. Um, this leads to people's self-censoring because they don't want those consequences. Sure, we don't want the government arresting us and prosecuting us, but we also don't want to lose our jobs and we also don't want to lose our friends. And in fact, every survey of the many surveys that have been done in the past half dozen or so years show that all of us, all across the ideological and demographic spectrum are engaging in massive self-censorship, including in the sectors of our society and culture where one would hope that free speech should be the most flourishing, including on campus, right? Including in journalistic institutions, including in cultural institutions. And when you ask people, why, and by self-censorship, I should clarify, just as there's good censorship and bad censorship, there's good self-censorship and bad self-censorship. You know, if you're using the term self-censorship to mean anytime we choose not to say something, that's actually an exercise of free speech, right? Because we have the right to choose what not to say, as well as to choose what to say. So uh, I choose to try to express myself in a way that is most persuasive and most interesting. That, that means I choose not to say certain things. But the bad kind of self-censorship is when we do not express an opinion or a perspective um, solely because we fear that it's going to be unpopular and that we're going to be then punished for having an unpopular view. Worse yet, if we don't address a certain topic at all, and the recent surveys show that people are massively self-censoring from saying anything about the most important topics, race and gender and immigration and police practices, all the topics that sexuality, all the topics that are at the forefront of public policy debates, where it's especially important, not only in terms of individual liberty, but also in terms of our representative democracy, that we, the people, engage in candid, vigorous, hopefully civil, uh, but not, you know, doctored, self-censored, expurgated discussion. That's not a real discussion. How much of this falls on law schools, right? At the end of the day, lawyers have to litigate these issues and will always have to litigate these issues. And 
Many law schools, if not most, have courses, obviously, in constitutional law and even more concrete courses in the First Amendment and free speech. How well are law schools training and incentivizing students to pursue this type of work? I would say that law schools are not doing as good a job as they should based only on the publicly available incidents of even maybe indeed especially some of the most prestigious law schools in the country where students so clearly misunderstand free speech tenets that they are violating the free speech rights of speakers that are invited to campus. And to me, as a professor who cares profoundly about students' education, they're violating the free speech rights of their fellow and sister students who choose to hear those speakers. So there have been well-publicized incidents just within the last year at Yale Law School, at Stanford Law School, uh, at Hastings Law School, others. And by the way, Hastings was very well handled by, by the dean at some of the other law schools. Uh, so giving the students a, a, a lesson um, that they are violating free speech rights. At some of the other schools, they haven't been as good. Um, they let the students get away with violating the school's own free speech policies. And, and, and even if there is a pro-free speech policy, it's not, uh, the students aren't aware of it, it's not enforced. Uh, many law schools now, it, I'm not sure about New York Law School because we veered back and forth and I haven't been teaching since 2019, uh, but many law schools and including New York Law School for a while did not require free speech as part of the basic constitutional law course requirement. The basic requirement was confined only to structural issues about federalism and separation of powers and then maybe a smattering of equal protection. So you can graduate from many law schools, including top law schools, without having learned anything about First Amendment principles, let alone seeing, it, seeing those principles honored in application on your campus. Professor, you know, the Supreme Court is comprised of so many young members and just over the past several months so many important issues have been decided from women's rights and dealing with affirmative action obviously where do you see this court going as it relates to free speech in the coming years and even decades i certainly uh, have strong negative uh, conclusions opinions about uh, a number of recent supreme court decisions and i say that to underscore that to the contrary, I am very optimistic, first of all, very positive about the Supreme Court's track record on free speech and very optimistic that it will continue in a positive vein. And here's something very interesting, Dimitri, that we all know, even the most casual member of the public who follows, you know, very generally Supreme Court decisions, we know that the court is very deeply divided and tends to be very closely split on issues of constitutional law along ideological lines. That tends not to be true when it comes to First Amendment free speech issues. On the vast majority of them involving very controversial speech where substantial percentages of the public wants to censor the speech, such as disinformation 
or hate speech or extremist speech, you have the justices either unanimous or all but unanimous, including the most conservative and the most liberal members of the court. And I ask myself, why is there such a disparity between the justices on the one hand, and by the way, organizations like the ACLU and FIRE, where we're coming to defend some speech that's obviously completely inconsistent with our own values, and you have the justices doing the same. So you have liberal justices defending freedom of speech for hate mongers, and you have conservative justices defending freedom of speech for communist flag burners. Um, you know, why that disparity? And why does the public tend to only want to support, and here's the way it's often described, freedom of speech for me, or people agree with me, but not for thee? And I think the answer is clearly something that distinguishes members of the public from members of the legal profession. And that is that in the legal profession, we know something about First Amendment law, or at least we used to when it was required education. The justices certainly know that. And they also tend to know the history that gave rise to it and the actual negative experiences that we had. Uh, before the First Amendment robustly protected controversial speech. They know that it was no coincidence in the cauldron of the civil rights movement that the Supreme Court uh, started to craft very strong speech protective principles and the immediate beneficiaries were Martin Luther King and other civil rights demonstrators because their speech was seen as dangerous and harmful and subversive and emotionally distressing and defamatory and all of the other negative adjectives that are now slung against speech with very different perspectives, but it's the same principles at stake. And so once I started realizing that it was information and knowledge about free speech that tended to increase support for free speech as evidenced by the Supreme Court itself and by members of the legal profession, uh, I said to my husband, you know, I ought to write a uh, free speech for dummies. That would really go a long way toward increasing support for free speech. And to make a long story short, a friend who's a literary agent said, well, Oxford University has a press that I has a has a series, Oxford University Press has a series that I think is the audience that's better than the audience for dummies. It's called What Everyone Needs to Know About. And indeed, uh, last year I signed a contract and I wrote a book uh, called Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's very user-friendly question and answer format. And I hope that your students and others who are interested in the topic will take a look at the book when it comes out in October. Professor, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly insightful and interesting. Once again, very much appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for doing it, Dimitri.